Okay, welcome back to IM Journal Club. Uh, I couldn't be more pumped about today's session. We're live here at the IBE, LMU Minutes Institute for Biometry, Epidemiology, and Medical Information Processing. Our topic today is modeling COVID-19, SIR, susceptible, infected, removed, SIR, isn't good enough anymore. Uh, modeling COVID is still an important topic because we will have further waves, we will have higher incidences, and we will have to implement non-pharmacological interventions, NPIs, again. The only question are, um, what impact will these NPIs have on incidences and consequences of severe disease? Where and when to start these NPIs and in what combination? And thereby, how to communicate the necessity for these to the general public and politicians? Uh, in terms of housekeeping, during the talk, feel, pre feel free to put all your questions into the chat. And with that, I would like to introduce today's speaker. Uh, today's speaker couldn't be more qualified to talk about COVID modeling. Let me introduce you to him. Uh, Professor Ulrich Mansmann attended the universities of uh, Heidelberg and Minnesota in, uh, for mathemat mathematics and economics as an undergraduate. And then he attend, obtained his PhD in mathematical physics from the Technical University of Berlin. He was then a postdoc and a member of the faculty in biometry and epidemiology at Free University Berlin and University Heidelberg. Ulrich Mansmann is since 2005 a full professor at LMU Munich, and he chairs the Institute of Medical, <clears throat> Medical Information Processing, Biometry and Epidemiology, IBE. Among other prominent position, he, uh, positions, Professor Mansmann is the past president of the German Society of Medical Informatics, Biometry and Epidemiology. And without further ado, I'll hand it over to Professor Mansmann. Okay, good afternoon. Thank you to Ben to invite me for this journal club. And uh, I got this topic about modeling and to give some feeling what is behind what does it mean and how was it implemented during the COVID pandemic? And what I did, I had to choose papers for this journal club. The first paper I chose um, is this paper of Curler. Okay, and this paper is a kind of report how the view on uh, SARS epidemic COVID-19 changed, how topics changed and how they also had an interaction with modeling. So it's about the data which is needed to understand the epidemic, how this data inspires models, especially how the models are built up with some theoretical structures, how the data is needed to feed the parameters of such models to get a realistic instrument to describe the pandemic and how this is used to create predictions. And you know how important these predictions have been. I will discuss one example later of Ferguson and how important it also is to check if the predictions are correct. And this is normally done again to look at the data which you have after the prediction, compare it and get a feeling how good the prediction fit the observed data. And the United States, the Center for Disease Control was very consequent in doing this. So they published always um, the cause of the epidemic 
and they asked some modelers to do predictions which have been published and which could have been compared later what is going on. We will see how this comparison looked like. And what you see, you see here is this ensemble of models. So the CDC never applied a single model. So there was always a mixture of models for this very important um, key measures of the of the, of the epidemic. And you see here a small list, which group of modelers contributed to this ensemble of models. And the ensemble of models was used to do this prediction. Um, and then one tried to compare what is going on and to improve this model. I mean, models have been at the first time of the epidemic, something like, machines which deliver trustworthy figures in uncertain times. I mean, there was a lot of um, belief in this kind of models to make some wish on what will happen. Um, and what I have here is, first, you, you cannot read it and it does not make sense to read it. It was a look in summer 2020 on a so-called modeling contest of the CDC and you see every little thing is a different kind of model which was used to produce um, predictions and some idea how the epidemic could, um, could develop. At the same time, there was a, a review of Johannidis, how to judge these models, how to look at them. And here perhaps you can see a lot of points of criticism he made, um, which have been not so much considered in going on with this modeling thing. The second paper I would like to discuss today is by a German group. They come from Tübingen and Tübingen was a big center for infectious epidemiological research, also modeling. It was Klaus Dietz who did a lot of modeling of the HIV epidemic and gained a lot of international uh, reputation. And um, this paper is written by two of his students, which are still active in this field. And it's more mathematical modeling. So it's not using empirical data to predict something. It uses mathematics and mathematical theory just to understand behavior of systems. So it's more a qualitative research, um, how parameters can change, for example, the behavior of a system and um, what needs to be considered. So this is something where mostly no data is applied. And there's a third paper, which we cannot discuss today in this journal club. It's also by a German physicist who was educated here in Munich, is now in Melbourne, in Australia, teaching as a professor for theoretical physics. He is also a physical modeler, and he prepared here a paper where he, as a physical modeler, uh, made some comments on the modeling culture he could observe in epidemiology. So this is a nice paper to go a little bit deeper in the criticism from, from the experience of other fields regarding modeling and how it was um, used in epidemiology. But let's go back to this paper of Kölle, the science report. And there's this very nice figure which shows that during the last two years when the epidemic was uh, developing, different aspects came into the focus and had to be answered. And he starts with the first exposure to SARS-CoV-2, this uncertainty, is it a dangerous thing or not? Uh, how can we describe it? 
And actually, in this time, the so-called um, SEER models, S-E-R models, have been very, very important to understand important um, features of the epidemic. But when it was realized that it's something dangerous and we should keep it, uh, take it seriously, the next question was, uh, how is the transmission? What can we learn about the transmission? You know, aerosol came as something which is very important. There have been a lot of uncertainty if smear transmission is something relevant. Um, how can we fight and contain uh, the development of the epidemic? So we need this non-pharmaceutical interventions. What is the effective one? How should we apply them? And suddenly modeling became very, very um, attractive and important. And then when this thing was going on, it was the big question, um, can we get reinfections and how we have to consider reinfections and the potential of reinfections to judge about the development of the, of the epidemic? Uh, will the virus change and which impact will this have? And, you know, here we had this alpha variant, which came later to the delta variant, and now we have the Omicron variant. Um, and then the last phase, um, after January 2021, we had vaccines, and it was a big question, um, how effective are these vaccines, can, they, can the virus escape immunity, and what is here really going on. But let's go now to this first step. What was important? The important thing was, I mean, you remember, this was an exponential growth rate, which was in each media um, mentioned. And it was important to observe the development, uh, the development of the epidemic and to apply this exponential growth rate to what happens um, and the cases which show up. At the same time, it was important to understand if somebody is infected, um, how fast will he infect another person? So this was this generation time and generation intervals. And this was from empirical data, simply you, you observed the onset of symptoms and uh, you looked on contact persons and you look again on, on onset of symptoms. And so you had an idea how this time may look like and you could derive this kind of distributions describing what is going on. So here you have a short uh, generation interval distribution. Here you have a long one. And it's known from the classical epidemiological um, mathematical modeling, that both of them um, are determined this R0, this famous number which came up, which is describing the dynamics of the disease, uh, of the epidemic in a natural environment, where is no measure against, is no immunity, nothing. Um, and you see here how um, this rate estimated from the exponential growth is translated um, with uh, the generation time, you have this, the long and the short into an R, zero, um, describing what is going on. And you know, this was a quite important uh, aspect. And behind of this, there is this SER model, this thinking, they are susceptible people, they will get infected, they will recover from the disease, and then they will be immune and um, will not be say, targets for the virus anymore. Um, you know, this changed a lot. So for the SER model cannot be um, 
taken serious anymore. But it it should be mentioned, it is a basic of the thinking, and it was in a way developed 1927. There are very nice mathematical solutions. It's well understood. And um, in this first time, when you had this infinitive, infinity, inf or infinite populations, no immunization, nothing, um, it was a good description of what is going on. And this R came up in, in two versions, in the R0, which is a natural um, parameter for the dynamics, or in the effective, which is the R, which is then observed when measures are taken against the, the infection. And this is simple static thinking. You have this person infected and say this person is creating, for example, here five new ones. So the R is five. Um, and you can think now how many people have to be vaccinated or immunized to get the whole thing under control. This is if an infected one is just creating a new infected one. So of this five, four had to be vaccinated or immunized. And this was a very important instrument to derive how much um, vaccination coverage is, is necessary in a population just to get the whole thing um, stopping. So, and then it got very important how the whole thing is um, transmissible. Uh, here's a very important uh, paper from Nature, where the first time sub uh, super spreading and the whole thing transmission in clusters was um, analyzed in Hong Kong, um, where, for example, here a huge cluster is creating new infections. There's a one guy who is creating this cluster of infections. You have smaller clusters, you have larger clusters. And there was a study looking in Hong Kong uh, how this pattern would look like. And it's very important to have this um, heterogeneity versus homogeneity. You have this heterogeneity index, which is simply um, how is the number of infected persons in clusters to the number of infected sporadic one. If you have here a situation where 20% of the clusters carry 80% of the infected, you get this very important heterogeneity index. And heterogeneity is quite important for also for modeling the speed of, of a disease, of, of an infection. Um, and many models try to builds this kind of clustering um, and cluster building. The next big issue was um, what are the NPIs which are effective and should be implemented. There have been systematic reviews just summarizing what is known from other um, similar infections um, and a lot of, of, of modelers started to estimate the effect of NPIs. And this was one paper it was written in June 2020, impressed me a lot, is a young group of data scientists. And what they did, they took in the United States areas of uh, census regions with a certain amount of, of, of uh, citizens, and they looked how these people moved around. They could do this just looking at um, the cell phone movement patterns, and so they looked places of infections. Um, and they could see how a person moves through the thing, collects opportunity of infection, comes back to this um, living area, this um, citizen censorship region. Um, and then they could 
model a lot and they used so-called SEIRs. This is, they have susceptible people, they move around and get exposed to, to some things and they get infected, bringing cases back home and then they recover. And doing this, um, having the history and how people visited several places, they could also estimate uh, the effect of some um, containment measures. And they came up with this very nice picture. So if you close down everything, um, what would happen if you open different aspects here? So if you go to a new car dealers, this is no problem at all. This is not dangerous. If you go but to food service restaurants, this is very dangerous. And from this here, people could derive strategies how to implement NPIs or how to take off restrictions. The funny thing, if you look at this uh, list, many important things are missing. There's no working place, there's no school, there's no kindergarten, but this is um, an effect of the design of the whole study where they just used this um, marketing research, um, mobile phone derived movement to specific shop and commercial um, issues. The famous guy, regarding NPIs and how to implement them is Neil Ferguson. He works at Imperial College in London. He is a famous modeler in, uh, in epidemics. And he made a very important report, very important for the government, where he just modeled the way how different containment measures would reduce, um, for example, the occupancy of critical care beds. The red line here is actually um, the level of available beds, how many cases you could have. You see, we are crossing the red line. So there's this huge surge of a critical care bed capacity coming here. And now if you do nothing, something like this looks like here. And if you go, uh, case isolation, home quarantine, social distancing of the older person, you can push it down, but you never reach uh, what the health system could, could, uh, could take. Uh, he also designed issues like open and closed things, houses would help to, to contain the epidemic, but he was one of the most famous um, modeler. But his model was applied in the United States for the population of the United States, for the population of the UK. It was compared with what happened, especially here's the protection of death. And it came out that this model is overestimating as well in the United States and in the United, case, uh, in the United Kingdom, um, so the cases which are to expect it, and it's it's a huge overestimation, which brought a lot of criticism to him. And I would recommend what is written here to look at this um, blog contribution of Andrew Gelman, a very famous statistician, what he thinks about Ferguson. And he calls his blog, so the real scandal is why did anyone ever listen to this guy? And he shows other modeling tasks he did and how he failed to give uh, reliable and trustworthy um, estimations. So this created a big uh, discussion.
but let's stop here the NPIs, go to the next step. You know how new variants came up. You had uh, the first variants coming from Wuhan. Um, then we had the alpha variant as the first big thing of the first change. Beta disappeared fast. Uh, Delta came, gamma, uh, gamma was also not a big thing. And now we have uh, the big overthrow of, um, of um, Omicron. And one has to study how could, for example, the virus develop. You had this phylogenetic trees. One could see in persons they got infected by a virus variant here, but then this person got reinfected later, and you could see how the, 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 the variant which created the caused the reinfection is different from the variant which is here. You have here this phylogenetic tree. How many mutations and relationships are between these two infections? So reinfection suddenly got a very important issue. Um, therefore, the issue of, of new variants got very important and was inbuilt in the models to create some predictions and so on. And suddenly, in starting in January 2021, we had the vaccination. We learned how effective the, the vaccinations are, um, which factors depend uh, if you implement vaccination in a population. Um, we see the viral factors, the mutations, um, and we are wondering if, for example, um, a vaccine which was good for the beta is still good for um, the Omicron now. And these are studies which are ongoing and delivering a lot of um, important information for the models. Let's stop here. This color paper, I liked it a lot because this overview was very enlightening for me and put this big puzzle nicely together. And I would like just to mention shortly our German governmental modelers, which is Viola Priesemann from the Max Planck Institute in Göttingen, Michael Meyer Hermann from the Helmholtz Center uh, in Braunschweig for infectious diseases, and uh, Dirk Brockmann at the Robert Koch Institute, who is an expert in looking at um, contact data from mobile phone um, issues like the example I gave before. So now we come to the more mathematical oriented people. Hans-Peter Dürr, which is the upper picture and um, Martin Eichner, they come from this Tübingen School of Epidemiology in Germany, and they did a mathematical um, reasoning in this paper. And actually to say, what we learned is you can be reinfected. Um, so vaccination will lose immunity. Um, so vaccinated will lose immunity. So we have a totally new situation. So let's say if you have this SEER model where you have a population of, of susceptible people who got slowly or got um, infected and then turn later to immunized um, recovered people, this is a situation which is, does not exist anymore. We have this seasonality and we have this kind of um, vanishing effects, which are now very important for the modeling we have to take into account. So 
the infection leaves only a temporary immunity and leads to a loss of uh, immunity in the population. So the suspected um, will raise again, will be targets for new infections. And so you have this up and down in the, between a reservoir of infected and non-infected. In the SEER model, you cannot have this reservoir because the only new people entering the population being susceptible are newborns, which have not been um, in a way exposed to the, to the infection. And so what they tell us as the, as, as the main message they have is a kind of a vaccination paradox. So what they do here, they look in a situation where the R0 is six. We will see um, this is quite realistic. And they have this loss of immunity and the seasonality. And we have to think, for example, efficacy of a vaccination is simply the percent vaccinated and um, times the vaccination efficacy. And now they are thinking in this model, what happens in different scenarios. For example, you have a scenario um, of just no vaccination, this natural um, immunization of a population. You have a, a scenario which is similar to what is going on at the moment. We have, for example, Germany, 70% of people vaccinated and the efficacy of, of the whole thing is about 70% against new infections and so on. So we have this 50% situation, or we can look uh, for this wonderful um, coverage of a very effective vaccine um, in a large part of the population, 95% coverage and 95% efficacy. So you come to this 90% setting. So this is an ideal setting. But if you look in this new modeling approach with this problem you have, you see for example, the infected of the low plan are similar to the infected just of the natural going on. Um, and you have this paradox that with a 90% situation effectiveness, you create more infected um, as, as the other things. Um, okay, you have also some more, but only a little bit of immunes in your population. Okay, so this model does not consider things like severe disease cause. Uh, it's simply on raw infection numbers. And um, what I learned from this model was simply um, that you can have even adverse events of vaccination. What I would define as that the vaccination creates more loss of immunity as a natural immunization. So suddenly in this new situation we have, we have a, to have a careful thinking, and I'm not sure if this is implemented in the official models, which are now governing our political decisions. So I think this paper is worthwhile to look at. Um, and therefore, one argument say, or one point they have is, don't push it too hard with the vaccination. So let's come to the summary. What I learned from all these um, modeling approaches, there is no consensus at the moment, what are the basic building blocks of a methodical model to predict um, corona infections in a good way. 
So you have a diffuse methods and even not always correctly applied. This is, for example, what the third paper of Bernhard Müller is discussing. So this mathematical model is based on theoretical structures and on implicit assumptions as well of a good choice of the parameters. And uh, especially the last thing remembered us what is a very specific thing now on this corona, new corona situation. With the Omicron, we, we have something where we have a high R0 and immunity disappears after a short time. And this does not exist so far in our common experience of epidemics. Because if you look at the typical child diseases, you have very high R0, like mumps or things like this, um, but you acquire a lifelong immunization. If you have a cold, an influenza, uh, a flu, influenza or something like this, you have low R0s, and there you have this acquired short immunity. You have just each year new susceptibility for the viruses. Uh, and therefore, what we have at the moment is totally different as what we are used. And I guess what the American do, just don't rely on a single model of a single modeler, but build ensembles to get something more robust is also something which is rarely discussed in our German um, policy making for the epidemic. And here I would like to stop and thanks a lot for your attention. Thank you so much, Professor Mansman, for this super interesting presentation. We will now move on to the Q&A. So thank you so, again. Thank you. Um, maybe I can start us off uh, with a question. Um, so you mentioned that there's really no clarity on modeling methods at the moment. Where do you think, as somebody who has already watched this field before Corona, where do you think it's headed? Where, where is it likely going to go in terms of modeling methods? When you have a lot of different fields of modeling activities, some which are built on classical um, mathematical models, you have some which are built on some statistical process modeling, for example, here in the Institute, uh, Sabine Hoffmann, she just published yesterday on MedArchive, her model. She is building a lot of uh, ideas from uncertainty. She's using Bayesian approaches, but she stays as a, how to say, statistical oriented modeler. And you have the computer people just building uh, little systems, little populations in computers. You have the agent-based models uh, where people are going on and trying to understand how a population will develop. So these are the three large groups of models and each group has a lot of different subgroups. Mm. But you do agree with the uh, general idea that you shouldn't rely on a single model, you should always have sort of different modeling approaches and an ensemble or a suite of models. I think this is a also a result of statistical research and a result of, of machine learning approaches that says ensemble models are very stable and very robust. And for example, one of the simplest ensemble models is random forests, for example, 
which show overall in, in many applications, very good and reliable behavior. Mm -hmm. And do you have, uh, not to put you on the spot too much, but do you have an example of a high-performing team of modelers that put out uh, a suite of models? I think you mentioned the, the CDC, which referenced several models. Did they coordinate that? Or do you have another example of where you say, yes, this team used a good ensemble of, of models and, and weighed the, the results well between them? I mean, here I have to do some to say good speak about our own institute i guess sabine hoffman she did a very careful modeling uh, she came even out now with a model but uh, she did a lot of this validation approaches um, so this is a model which is how to say in my point of view quite reliable i have to say the other modelers like um, Priesemann or Meyer Hermann um, and Dirk Brockmann, I guess they have interesting and good models, but it's not how to say quite transparent what they do exactly, uh, how they have the code. And I have no easy access to this kind of validation um, exercise that the prediction is just opposed to observed data and how good this fit. And just going back to, to the model of Ferguson, this was something made quite fast. He used very old code of um, models he applied to influenza. Uh, it was quite intransparent what he did and how he did. It was not reproducible. Um, and so this is a very powerful person, but not behaving as a modeler quite seriously. Mm -hmm. So in other words, you should always uh, clarify your assumptions for the model. You should always explain the model well so that it's not a black box, but that the stakeholders really understand the model to some degree. And even if you give the code to other people, it's a huge task to get the code running and to get a deep understanding if the code is trustworthy or not. Mm -hmm. um, but I hope this will develop now um, out of this need of good models that we get a good practice way how to do it. Mm -hmm. uh, please feel free to put more questions into the chat. Um, so one question I received is about um, SAR models. So uh, is it correct that um, in hindsight, you know, this looked worse than it actually was in the situation you mentioned in the beginning, you had this exponential growth, you needed to think about worst case scenarios. Uh, I remember the decision in the UK and the US was to keep open, uh, to keep those societies open and then modeling influence that by a long shot. Uh, is it too simple to say SRR models even then didn't have any role? Um, in other words, did they like fit so, but, the purpose back then? But the SER model is actually within most of the models because this thinking that something is moving from one compartment to the next one um, is quite behind a lot of the models. I mean, the SER model has a, a certain assumption. You have this infinite a population, you have no immunity there. 
it builds up by the process. And I guess at a certain point, um, it was not good anymore, uh, especially if people realized there is a different strata, also different behaviors. So you have a kind of mixture of the whole thing. Uh, this is not easily just reflected by a general SER model. Uh, there are some mathematical modelers which shows that even a high degree of a degree of heterogeneity even slows down um, the, the pandemic. Um, and then you come in a situation where you cannot do easy calculations. And this is where simulation comes in. Um, so I guess the SER was a very important starting point of thinking. And we have seen it does not cover the situation at the moment. So you need this SEIRS models um, in different ways. Yeah. The S being susceptible again after you recover. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and probably you also need different probabilities for patients that have received uh, their primary vaccine series. They have a certain immunity. Um, people who are boosted, uh, people who have recovered from the disease, uh, and then maybe In time since age. the certain yeah. age, yeah. Um, and maybe also the time since disease and since vaccination. So probably it's going to be a very complex model if you have different degrees of susceptibility um, after vaccination and disease, correct? So this is correct. And as more as you go from averages of populations to specific subgroup like the severe diseases uh, showing up in a hospital. This modeling gets more and more difficult. Yeah. So in a way, you, you're not just modeling uh, one yeah. outcome, people who are infected, you're also modeling who has symptoms, who has mild symptoms, who has to go to the yeah. hospital, who has to go to the ICU, uh, who, has to, uh, who, yeah. is, uh, who is possibly dying. Um, another question we received is about uh, the different strains. Uh, so assuming that um, different strains are currently taken over, uh, BA4 and 5 are taken over from earlier Omicron strains, um, those seem to have different R0s or so R0s. Uh, so that would probably um, add on another layer of, comple uh, complex, uh, of complexity to yeah. the models where you have different yeah. strains going around and then maybe one taken over, but in, in, in between, you have sort of a mix of strains uh, infected people, correct? But this is over, this is times of trans, transition from one to the other one is mostly quite short. I mean, if you see the pictures here, if one effective and successful variant comes up, it is replacing, the beta was replaced quite fast by Delta. Mm -hmm. And Delta was replaced quite fast by Omicron. So I guess this transition issue is not so mm -hmm. important. You have two, three months and it's done. Yeah. Um, and do you have a crystal ball? Um, can you already talk no. about, um, you know, sort of uh, the, 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 the remainder of the year with um, these strains that I mentioned that have a even higher a, a transmission rate, even higher. So I, I have heard the, at the moment most effective strains has an R0 from 12. Mm. So I don't know what will come afterwards. But my point is more what uh, I learned from Eichner and Dürer, that it's quite important when to place vaccination campaigns mm -hmm. in the population. And this is my, how to say, biggest fear that our politicians 
are not understanding such issues and we will make wrong decisions uh, in fall. But I don't have a crystal ball. I cannot give you a clear prediction how everything will, will develop and how bad it will develop. No idea. I, I think I will not do this here. Yeah. Um, and then I guess um, future vaccines will also be important um, um, in terms of you know whether they target Omicron, yeah. whether they have a higher effectiveness uh, in preventing any symptomatic disease or even transmissibility. Um, so another factor. Uh, another question we received is about agent-based models. Um, are they actually still uh, being used or was that only at the beginning of the pandemic? And the person who wrote the question said that they had the feeling agent-based models were only shortly prominent in 2020 for showing the single dots running around, but they don't see such models anymore. So I'm not an expert in it. I know that some groups are still using agent-based models because they are easy to implement specific behaviors and features, which is a mathematical model not often not able. Hmm. So I, I know people who are still thinking in this agent-based models, mm -hmm. but I'm not, I'm sure. So for example, the three persons I, I named as our German modelers, they don't use mm -hmm. such things. Yeah. All right. Um, I think that concludes our session for today. And thank you for the interesting questions. And thank you very kindly for this very interesting presentation, Professor Matsumoto. Thanks a lot. Um, our producers nice are evening. also asking, asking us to like this video, to subscribe to our YouTube channel, um, and to press the bell button. See you in the next journal club. Bye.